the Howler Podcast. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Mary. And it is episode two. We're already on the second one, Mary. We did it. We did it. And so much great feedback from the pack, which was so fun. Yes. So many great comments in the Howler Slack channel. So if you are not in that channel already, make sure you join. Um, because we are going to select winners to win swag. Um, so I believe we have selected the winners from the first podcast. So again, thank you for those who left comments. The winners are going to win, drum roll, (laughs) this lovely t-shirt. I'm telling you, it is a 10 out of 10 t-shirt. 10 out of 10. Firstly, designed by our pack member, Kamal. It's the official Happy Wolves t-shirt. There's the Happy Wolves logo on the sleeve. And then another Happy Wolves logo on the front for those of us that are listening to the audio. Um, But it is the softest t-shirt. Even after, like, even after multiple washes, the shirt just like does not lose its magic. Yeah. So congrats to our winners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for commenting. We'll reach out to you. Or actually, you've probably been reached out to already by the time this episode airs. <laughs> exactly. Hope you're enjoying your t-shirt. Yes, yes. Um, And it's October, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. All yes. right. Fall, Halloween is around the corner. Not, I don't want to set the bar too high, but PX, we've got our costumes planned mm-hmm. and they're, they're good. So we hope you all are ready because we're ready. So fun. Well, I'm looking forward to Halloween and our Halloween activities. Um, yeah. We're having some parties in the offices. We're having a remote pack day in October. So I think this awesome month contest. Bring, yeah, this month is going to bring a lot of fun stuff. For sure. um, speaking of the podcast going well, I was thinking about how, so it's kind of funny when we recorded our first episode, Chelsea came into work that day and was like, Mary, you're not going to believe what I saw on LinkedIn. Chelsea, do you want to just like share that post that you saw? Yes. And this is not a direct quote, obviously. Um, But that morning I had um, gotten on LinkedIn and it was supposed to be one of those inspirational messages where like, you're not going to like your success is not just going to come the very first time that you try something. Um, And it was like a bullet list of like, your first movie is going to suck. Your first basketball game is going to suck. But the very first one, your first podcast is going to suck. And we were recording the podcast that day. And I didn't know if it was a good or a bad thing. It just felt like, like a reminder of like, I was already nervous. We were talking with Brian. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's going to suck. Like the internet is telling me that it's going to suck. <laughs> right. The message was like, but you got to start in order. Right. Great right. someday. And I think we lucked out because with Brian Smith, there was absolutely no way the podcast was going to suck. But now that it's live into the world, I think we can feel good that while it may not be the best podcast of our career, if you will, because it was the first one, we can only go up from here, hopefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we started, which is great. And I thought too, I was just thinking for anyone else that's trying something for the first time or stepping out of their comfort zone or taking on a project that stepping into territory that you've not been before, we're right there in the arena with you. Mm-hmm. And oh after the first step, you can take another. So yes I love that my little um encouraging word for the day (laughs) but speaking of the podcast I am personally so excited for today's guest same me too he's known for giving really good stories at Arctic Summit if you've attended Arctic Summit um so I know we're about to hear some even better stories I feel like I know I cannot wait and just like some different things I've seen him talk about. I'm just excited to hear his story. So without further ado, our guest today is Adam Mare. He is our Chief Information Security Officer at Arctic Wolf. Prior to joining, he was the Global Head of Information Security Operations and Physical Security at Qualtrics. Um, He has deep roots in the cybersecurity space. He spent almost 12 years with the FBI, holding positions like SWAT Senior Team Leader and Special Agent. Let's get this conversation started. 
Adam, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Okay, well, I know we mentioned a lot that October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and I feel like that's the perfect segue. Um, we want to get started with maybe giving a little bit of background of exactly what a CISO is. There might be some people here at Arctic Wolf that aren't as familiar as to what your day-to-day -day looks like. So could you tell us a little bit about your role, um, your team, and kind of what a day in the life of a CISO looks like? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, so CISO obviously is a chief information security officer. Um, we pronounce it CISO, other people pronounce that acronym in other ways, but at the end of the day, what that role is, is really securing the company, right? So it started out with securing data and assets. And in, in most places, it's really reached really just securing the whole company. So what does that mean? It means aligning the time, effort, resources of the company to mitigate risks at the level that the company is comfortable with. It's called risk appetite. And so you make those two thing, things match and basically allow the company to do business, but be as secure as possible while doing that. And there's a lot of domains to cover. There's this thing called the CISO mind map. Maybe you can look it up and you just see all these different domains that a, a CISO has to, to cover and make sure are covered by themselves or their teams, depending on the size of company that they are. And so here at Arctic Wolf, uh, we call our team uh, Enterprise Security and Risk Management or ESRM. So you may have seen emails from ESRM or other communications from ESRM. And our whole goal is to protect the company. We're made up of four separate teams. There's the GRC or Governance Risk and Compliance team. There's the Proactive Security team. So think of application security and pen testing. Then we have a, a small security operations team. And then we also have Enterprise Security Architecture. And that team's in charge of you know, securing our endpoints and things like that. So we have four different teams that comprise the larger team. And our, our goal is to secure the company. I was thinking about how, when thinking about preparing for this interview in your role, I know I've heard it said before that, um, what is it, a flight operations? What's the most stressful job ever in the world by definition? Isn't it like a flight flight control? Oh. Yeah, the air, air traffic air controller. controller. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I heard it said that the air traffic controller is like one of the most stressful jobs, but I feel like CISO has got to be up there. I mean, even in your description of it, you talk about how your job is to decide what, like, what's our risk appetite, which means mm -hmm. apparently we're taking on risk. Um, like, what are we okay with and how are we going to protect ourselves? And to some degree, you're flying by blind. Like every day there could be new types of attacks or ways that people could, um, could pose a threat to us. So I think that leads well into, I know Chelsea had asked what, tell us what a day in your life, but I'd love to know, like, what's a typical day in your life and how do you, um, manage what you do when there is so much unknown part of your job is to take calculated risks. Take us into your life a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And like a lot of really great jobs, there's no typical day. You don't come in and kind of do the same thing. It really depends on what's going on. Like if, if you've had a breach or a, a serious investigation, you could be living that for weeks or months. And that's all you're doing every day is trying to handle a large scale breach or something like that. Most of the time though, you're, you know, you're setting strategy, having various meetings, talking to stakeholders across different teams, working with your own team. You could be diving down all the way into very, uh, you know, sort of nerdy details of something, you know, why a security solution isn't working or how would we deploy it all the way up to, you know, strategy for the next three to five years for the company. So Really, there's no typical day. The days are all over the place. Of course, you know, lots of meetings, lots of um, thinking and talking about risk and, you know, trade-offs of security. That's a very common topic. But to go to go to your overarching question is basically like, you know, is this like very stressful and there's a lot of responsibility? Yes, those things are true. But if you do it right, and I like to think at Arctic Wolf, we're, we're doing our best to do it correctly. Not all of that pressure is on one person. It's not all on the CISO. Obviously, that's my prerogative. It's my job to look at that strategy and set the strategy. But all of us hold the risk at the company. And especially at, you know, the highest level of leadership, the C-level, you know, all of those different folks hold the risk of the company. And so we don't leave it to just the security leadership to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. The whole of leadership needs to make those decisions. And so 
our job is to basically shine a light on the risk, um, try to quantify it in a couple of different ways, and then show it to the leaders and say, what, what do we want to do here? And present, you know, different options for us to handle and mitigate that risk. And of course, we're making trade-offs. We're making trade-offs based on, you know, in our case, what features we want to ship of our software, what we want to focus on, what we want to spend money on, uh, what we want to spend time on, because, you know, of course, there's a thousand things to do. And what is the right level of effort to lower that risk to make it so that we can we can do business, but aren't, I mean, you know, if we took it to the logical conclusion of security, we would just turn everything off, unplug everything, lock the doors and walk <laughs> away. And then we're perfectly secure, right? But obviously that's not what we want to do. So we have to find somewhere between that and doing nothing on security. And mm -hmm. that is the, the sort of dance that we do. But I don't hold all of that responsibility myself. Um, in fact, here at Arctic Wolf, we have something called the Information Security Council. And that's made up of, you know, a number of the highest leaders in the company, including our CEO, CFO, and all of us sit together and make these risk decisions together to best address those risks, uh, treat them as a company and make sure we're doing the right things to keep us secure, but then also the right business decisions. Because ultimately, these security decisions are business decisions. What's the right decision for the business? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love to hear that you and your team feel supported and you're not necessarily carrying the weight of, you know, addressing these risks and assessing these risks alone. Um, so hopefully you're not up at night stressed <laughs> and thinking about thinking about all the risk. But as a CISO, what does keep you up at night? Like, is there anything right now that is keeping you up at night related to cybersecurity? Well, related to your question, I mean, I have to say, it does help me sleep at night knowing all the support we have. And we have support from, you know, employees that have been here a few weeks submitting security tickets and letting us know things they're concerned about all the way up to other senior leaders, leaders reaching out to us and saying, hey, we're concerned about this. We're trying to do this. Can you help us do it in a secure manner? That kind of support people proactively coming to us makes me feel a lot of comfort, right? And uh, I do have some techniques to sleep at night. So that's, I think the question really is what worries you most or what scares mm -hmm. you right now, right? And a, a couple of things for me, one is, uh, and this is a one that I don't think will ever go away, but insider threat is a, is a real concern of mine. Insider threat, just for those that may don't know, maybe don't know that phrase, it, it refers to someone who is in the company who has access legitimately, but either through negligence or through you know, being malicious for some reason, decide to do something with that access that they shouldn't do. Stealing information, you know, destroying something, whatever it is. So that's a big concern because detecting insiders and finding them is is not an easy task, right? So, you know, we have all different ways to address that, but that's one thing that concerns me. The other one is, you know, because of my background, I'm aware of how a determined nation state actor with that kind of backing resources and time, what they can do. And so, if a nation state actor were to turn their focus on us, maybe, you know, because of one of our customers and we're in kind of a supply chain attack there, um, that is that is a frightening prospect for me. So those are some of the things I think about. But, um, but you know, I can't think about that all the time. I do try to compartmentalize those those worries, put them in the right place, trust my future self to take care of these things, and then I can mm -hmm. sleep well at night when I do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, trusting your future self, mm -hmm. setting yourself up for success now and knowing that when the time comes, you'll be able to cross the bridge or make the decisions that you need to make. So exactly right. Yeah. Over over years and years, you build up trust with your future self. You know, like if I don't worry about this now, I know future Adam will take care of it. And that's that's been a big help to me. Yeah, I love that. And when you're being successful in the moment now, to your point, you're building trust and credibility and confidence in yourself. For that future person. Yeah, I feel like it's hard to move on from this little moment because it's sobering. Like thinking about the risk, I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm getting anxious just hearing about those two things that you said. I'm like, okay, well, I feel confident that you feel confident. Like that gives me some <laughs> some like relief. But ooh, I like got the chills when you were talking about those two things. Yeah, you know, the, we get used to it in the security world because this is the way we live all the time. And sometimes it surprises me when I realize like everyone else doesn't think about this all the time, you know, and I think about it even in my personal life, you know, with scams and social engineering and all of that. So 
it's just something that we we learn to live with. For, fortunately, the things that protect you mm-hmm. against, you know, low-level attackers also protect you against high-level attackers. So we're really working on the same work. The other thing is we, you know, we have a, uh, a philosophy in security. It's it's not if, but when. And so you don't focus so much about, you know, absolutely not letting it happen. You also focus on resilience and being able to have good incident response plans and disaster recovery and business continuity plans so that you can recover quickly from these events. I mean, obviously we do everything to prevent them, but detection is an absolute must and then response. So we also try to create resilience. So we look at the full spectrum of the problem and it's not just, you know, avoiding bad things or trying to prevent them. It's also being able to be resilient in the face of them. And so uh, being prepared in that way gives you a lot of confidence that, you know, we don't want the bad things to happen. We're going to try to prevent them. But if we do, I know we can recover. I know we can figure it out and I know we can move on. Okay, that was great. Now we are going to take a really short break and hear a recent win from our sales team. Hi there, my name is Jenna and I'm from the sales team in Sweden. Let me share a success story with you. And it kicks off with an inbound lead received by my SDR. It wasn't just any lead, it came directly from a private company in the need of cybersecurity and SOC services, with seven potential vendors in the mix. Talk about fierce competition. Without missing a beat, we sprang into action, scheduled meetings, diving into technical details and much more. Their vision was clear, security operations as a service. The board was in a hurry for security enhancements and saw us as their express route to success. Despite a few standard twists and turns along the way, our expert guidance and concierge delivery model convinced them that we were the dream team. A massive shout out goes out to the team at Arctic Wolf who made it all happen. Speaking of personal risk and protecting yourself, not only at work, but in your personal life, our listeners today are getting coffee, if you will, or driving or working out or who knows what with um, a CISO. So what would you say are your top like two, three things that every person should be doing to protect themselves, whether it's professionally or personally from specifically cybersecurity or security risks? Well, you know, it's the classics, right? It's the typical things. And I have a lot of, you know, I have a lot of people in my personal life and professional life will come to me and say, you know, I was hacked or this was taken over. What can I do? And a lot of people are looking for that, that silver bullet, that panacea, you know, what can I do that will protect me? Is there a software solution for my phone? What can I, and you know what? It's the classics. It's good password management, having 2FA or MFA everywhere you can, patching and keeping everything updated. And then just being aware and detecting various social engineering attempts on you, be it, you know, through text or email or whatever it is, just being ready for those. Those are the four things. And I'm telling you, if you can do those four bread and butter things, you are not going to be the low hanging fruit. You are not going to be the one who gets attacked. You're going to be resistant. You know, I'm never going to promise anybody you won't be attacked, but man, it'll be a lot harder if you can just do those things. Unfortunately, though. That basic cyber hygiene is, is you know, fairly rare and, and difficult for a lot of people to do. But that's what I tell everyone, those those things. Well, this is like a perfect plug for, if you don't know, listeners, whether you're part of the pack or not, Arctic Wolf has published some free security awareness content on our website. Um, and there's like, I would say maybe 10 videos out there. There's one specifically for seniors, um, but all the things Adam just talked about. If you want to share it with your friends or family, we wanted to make sure the world had access to the basic security fundamentals they need to keep themselves safe. So if you want a deeper dive on anything Adam just said, be sure to check those out. Yeah. And I think the the biggest thing that underlines it all is situational awareness, right? Um, people need to be aware of how dangerous it is online or just, you know, the security problems that can happen online. They need to be aware of that. And if you have that situational awareness, that can help so much. We do this naturally in our, you know, physical environments. We lock our doors when we leave our house. We put our seatbelts on. If we're in a weird area at night that we're unfamiliar with, you know, our spidey senses start tingling and we, you know, we're, we use that fear in a good and proper way to put ourselves in safe situations, hopefully. 
but people don't naturally do that online. That it, it can be a challenge for people. They don't consider their email box as dangerous as it is. They don't consider, you know, going to websites and things like that, maybe with the same level of, you know, kind of respect and, and healthy caution that they should. And so that's that's another thing. Underlying those four key points is just a sense of caution. That doesn't mean you have to be terrified and, you know, afraid of everything, but just that sense of caution when you go out and do those things. And it's, you know, been a source of pride for me when my kids will come to me and say, dad, this looks like a scam. I'm like, yes, it is. Glad you saw that because they, you know, they hear it from me all the time and they have that, that healthy skepticism and that healthy caution as they're out there in the online world, just like they are in the real world. Mm-hmm. Okay. I love that. Speaking of your kids, let's go back to when you were a little kid. Did you always envision yourself in this space? I mean, this job probably didn't even exist. I mean, as you said, it's a it's a newer field. So what did little Adam want to be when he grew up? And kind of walk us through your journey to Arctic Wolf. Yeah, I absolutely did not even want to be in security. <laughs> that was not even an inkling in my mind. And I think the first CISO ever was in the mid-90s. So yeah, when I was young, it was it was not a thing. Of course, people were doing security, physical security, and they were doing information security, but no, that was not something that was, um, you know, I like a lot of kids, I wanted to be, you know, an astronaut and various other things, you know, play sports or something like that. But one thing I really focused on was um, video games. I loved video games as a kid, got a Nintendo Entertainment System, the 8-bit one, loved it. And when I was young, seven or eight, I even submitted an idea for a video game to Nintendo. I sent them a letter, wow. drawings and everything. And wow. I wish yeah. I still had their response. They responded to me and I wish I still had their response, you know, and it said, thanks, but no, thanks. We don't take, you know, ideas from <laughs> random kids. What but, was the video uh, game? Like, what was the promise of the game? Uh, it was a game in which you had to climb seven different mountains, seven levels, and you were trying to find a cure for the common cold that some evil scientist had stolen. And the I remember the name of the lead character was Luke Warm, and you were you were supposed to go do that. Anyway, it was it was pretty dumb. <laughs> but, I think um, it sounds like eight year old. And the bowl. yeah, I wanted I wanted to be a video game designer, and you know what? I I was able to actually reach that goal. I you know I went through high school and university, and uh, was able to kind. Of, they didn't have video game design degrees back then, but I was able to kind of craft that together for myself. And I got a job at a company called Avalanche Software in Salt Lake City and ended up making games. Eventually, the studio got bought by Disney. So I was making, you know, lots of kids games. We worked on uh, things like, you know, Rugrats uh, was a Nickelodeon title. And then I worked on Chicken Little and Meet the Robinsons and what would become Toy Story 3. That would later become Disney Infinity. So worked on a lot of these video games, did that for a number of years. And, you know, I reached it. It was a dream job. So you might ask, well, what the heck are you doing in security now? Well, uh, what happened was 9-11. Um, and we recently had the you know 22nd anniversary of that. And it was it was a big deal for me. Some of our newer employees, that may be a historical event for them. Uh, but for me, you know, I lived it. Uh, I wasn't too long out of college when that happened. And uh, it had a big effect on me. And I wanted to change what I did. Um, and so that led me to be a counterintelligence agent in the Army, and then later going into the FBI. And when I started exploring it, I realized how much of a passion for security I had, how much of a passion I have to try to make the world a safer place for everyone, either through educating them on their own actions or actually taking direct action against, you know, people who would make our world less safe. And so I was also able to reach that dream and, and become an FBI agent. I did that for 12 years and then uh, eventually made the decision to go private sector. And it only made sense to do what I'd been doing in the FBI was, which was mostly cyber investigations, but do that in the private sector. And uh, so I left after 12 years of that, and then uh, eventually got the opportunity to come here to Arctic Wolf. Uh, and to be the CISO of a security company is an absolute gift. I love it every day. And so it's it's really great to be here, but that's, that's kind of the, the brief version of my journey. <laughs> You know, you say being a CISO is a gift, but something I'm observing about your story is gifts are freely given, but you worked really hard to get to the spot you're in. And I'm really, I think we even see it back to that eight-year-old story of this gumption and this initiative, and you have a vision and you pursue it. You submitted that video game because in preparing for this interview, I had done a little research. (laughs) I was reading just a little bit about you and 
I had read, and you correct me if this is wrong, but I had read that you had said in some interview that you wanted to go into the FBI, but there wasn't a direct path. And so you figured out you would start in the army and then you started volunteering with like an FBI. I don't know if you can volunteer with the FBI. So that might be not the correct statement, but you joined like a local force, which kind of gave you that um, pathway in. But I'm just seeing how you create uh, you don't wait or take no or roadblocks. I feel like it really seems like you carve your own path, no matter what that path is. Yeah. Oh, that's very, that's very nice of you to say. I do. I, I mean, I have to acknowledge, you know, I've had a lot of advantages in my life. And so I do want to acknowledge that. And, and I mean, being born at the time I was where I was with the family I had, I mean, really just, just had a lot of advantages, but I do try to capitalize on those and work hard. And, and I do identify things that, that I am interested in. I like to do, I'm fairly analytical. So I study them and then I try to figure out a path for me to get there. And, you know, I haven't achieved everything that I've wanted, but some, some main goals I have. And so there, there are definitely failures left strewn about the field. Um, but of course we like to focus on the, the, the successes and that, that was what I was able to do um, with the FBI as I did you know, I was working in video games and I looked at the FBI and I wanted to join. I called and I, I talked to recruiters and at the, t so today, if you look at them and you have a computer background, they're like, oh my gosh, where sign up, let's go join, join today. They, they can't get enough people who are, you know, uh, have the training and technology and, and programming computers and things like that. But back then it was like, oh, you're a nerd. We, you know, we already got enough nerds. We don't need you. So that is what led me to the army to get that intelligence background, which was a pathway into the FBI. And so that's what I did. Um, I also tried to meet a lot of FBI agents to try to get as much information as I could to try to give me as much an advantage and then, you know, go take the tests and do everything I needed to do to get in, into the FBI. So, yeah, so there was a bit of a journey there. Of course, you know, when we look back and we tell our stories, it seems all smooth but we don't talk about, you know, the weeks and months I thought I'd failed and there was no way I was going to get in. And I was looking at other, other things to do besides getting in the FBI, but ultimately I did. I mean, I had to try a number of times to get in, but uh, eventually I was able to do that. How would you compare the FBI's culture to like being part of the pack? So, yeah, I mean, being part of the law enforcement community is a, it's a really tight knit community. Definitely look out of each other. It's a brotherhood, sisterhood, um, it, it's a fantastic place to be. It is, it is hard though, right? Like you're, you're dealing with some pretty difficult things a lot. And whether you're working in cyber or you're working counterterrorism or criminal activities, whatever it is, it is really hard. And, uh, you know, you got to be willing to carry a firearm in the United States, you know, in the FBI, you carry a firearm, you got to be willing to really stand up and possibly risk your life for others. So, there's some considerations there. Other things is, um, you know, ultimately my decision to leave the FBI was because my kids were getting older. I was gone a lot and I really wanted to be home. I knew, you know, I would never get those years back, especially those, those mm -hmm. tween to teenage years. And I wanted to be home for those years. Mm -hmm. And so it just was really important to me to do that. And it was hard to leave the FBI, you know, like that brotherhood was something amazing. And, uh, but ultimately made the decision to do it. I think it was the right thing to do, but it's not for everyone. You don't get to decide where you live. They can call you off a of vacation, tell you to come back to the office and start working. So, um, but if there's something that's close, if there's something that's close to that, it's what we have in the pack. And in Utah, we got that big sock, you know, it's really impressive. We bring customers and show them that big sock and all those people in there. And I see that, that teamwork. And again, that brotherhood and sisterhood. And it just reminds me so much of that. So you know, if if uh, law enforcement isn't the right place for you, boy, Arctic Wolf is a great place to be. That was great. We're going to take a quick pause right now to hear a security win from one of our security services pack members. Hi, everyone. My name is Cole Bosma, and I'm a TSE 3 located remotely in Minnesota. Uh, and for the security win that I wanted to share today, uh, we recently had an alert come in for one of our customers regarding a suspicious inbox rule creation. Uh, and this rule was actually created by the CIO's account, who was our primary contact for the customer. Uh, so seeing this, our frontline triage team uh, called out to him, and he stated that this was expected activity, uh, but later called us back and recanted on that and asked for further investigation into this. 
during the initial investigation, the CSOC was able to identify that the CIO's Office 365, Office 365 account was actually compromised. Uh, and finding this, we called out to him and were able to provide immediate remedial actions uh, to remove the threat actor from the environment while we were continuing our investigation. Uh, as we dug further into this, uh, we discovered that the CIO's account was actually a global administrator within their Office 365 tenant, uh, essentially meaning that they had the highest privileges and access that they could have. Um, so knowing this, uh, we decided to investigate further and found that the threat actor was abusing this privilege to give themselves delegate access to several high-profile mailboxes, uh, including the director of accounting, among others. Uh, and then when they had this delegate access, they were creating malicious inbox rules within the mailboxes themselves. Uh, so seeing this and concluding our investigation, we were able to provide a, uh, the customer with a full incident timeline uh, and re additional recommendations to remove the delegate access that the threat actor had created. Uh, once the dust had settled, CSOC was able to sync with the CST team for this customer uh, and provide them a spider on lease privilege uh, to remediate uh, any privilege issues that they have in their Office 365 environment to uh, avoid an issue like this in the future. Um, all in all, I think this was a great win as we were able to contain and eradicate the threat actor in a very timely manner uh, before more damage could have been done, leveraging this very highly privileged CIO's account. Well, since we're talking about the FBI right now, uh, for PAC members who have heard you speak at Arctic Summit, they've probably heard some of your really neat stories from the FBI, but we want a Howler podcast exclusive. Yeah. Is there a story that you maybe have not shared at Arctic Summit? It doesn't have to be a long one, um, but maybe a cool story from your time in the FBI that we could debut here on the Howler podcast. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, one of the first experiences I had when I was an FBI agent that got me really interested in cyber, because I do typically talk about, you know, they identified me, they identified my technical background and, and started to push me in that direction. But even before that, I, so when I was first an agent, I was assigned to a small satellite office of a field office. We call those resident agencies. So I was in a, a you know, smaller area in a resident agency that just had four FBI agents. There was no support people, anything like that. Just four of us doing all the work sharing the work between us. So we were working everything from, you can think from counterintelligence, counterterrorism, kidnappings, gangs, drugs, and cyber. And at the time I had focused, you know, my motivation to join the FBI had been 9-11. So I was focused a lot on counterterrorism. I was focused a lot on criminal activity. This was kind of the, the beginning of the height of the op opioid crisis. So we had like 3X and 4X overdose deaths in our area. So we really wanted to attack the problem of, you know, opioid um, dealing and heroin dealing and all of that that was connected to that. But we had this case come in that was uh, a cyber case, and it was really interesting. So I'll just I'll, I'll tell you that story. And what what happened is there was a child exploitation ring that was operating really internationally around the world. So there were people all throughout the United States, but also in Australia and in Europe. And unlike a lot of these types of cases, these people were not just distributing this material, they were also creating it. So this was really, really bad. And they were also using a lot of technology, which was kind of rare, especially at the time. I and mean, this is like the beginning of social media. So there wasn't like anything like Telegram or Signal, these end-to-end -end encrypted uh, means of communication didn't really exist. So what they'd done is there was a you know computer expert who was part of this ring of criminals, and he had created all of these different tactics, techniques, and procedures, created different uh, encryption mechanisms for them to communicate and share this material with each other. And this guy was paranoid enough that he'd actually rigged up a bunch of scripts and programs that he could trigger in the case where someone got arrested or they thought they might be getting taken down by law enforcement, where it would go through and encrypt drives at their servers all over the world, wipe drives, do all these things. And he actually had it connected to a, a big button in his office that he could hit. And we found this out from surveillance and from informants and even had some things rigged up to physically destroy hard drives that he had there uh, in his in his office. And this person who was kind of the command center for all this, for this international ring was in our area, was in our city. And so we started to conduct surveillance. 
trying to run informants. It was really difficult trying to figure out where this, this person was. But then finally, it came to the day where we got the indictment. We got the arrest warrant from the judge. The judge gave us permission to do this at really early hours in the morning and to do a no-knock warrant because we were so afraid that you know this person was going to hit that kill switch and just destroy all that evidence. And we needed it to, to convict these people all over the world. I mean, there were law enforcement agencies in other countries who were depending on us. And so then the day comes... Again, I was still a pretty new FBI agent, but I had joined the SWAT team, so I was a breacher. And so they put it wasn't a SWAT hit; it was you know just a normal uh, arrest warrant. But they put me up in front with the ram, and then there's a lot of pressure. We got to get in there and get this guy before he's able to do this thing, you know, hit this kill switch. So it didn't happen every time, but I got to say on that one, you know, I I rammed the door, got it in one swing. Door flies open. I drop the ram. Guys go running and past me. I jump into the stack past them. We grab this guy. He was actually sitting at his computer. We grab him, get his hands, get him on the ground. And I remember as we're getting him arrested, I look back over my shoulder and I see the two forensic computer forensic agents running in and they're jumping on the computer, which was live and open because they want to capture that live memory. They want to see what's going on. They want to make sure no one else is locking anything down. And so they're jumping right on that computer. And as soon as we got him arrested, we set him down in the room. Uh, the other agents start to interrogate or, or interview him, start, start to talk to him. I run over to the computer agents and see what they need and start helping them. And it was when my eyes were open to uh, what, you know, the difference you could make in doing cyber investigations. And as a result of that, you know, we kicked it off, but people were arrested all over the world, took down this child exploitation ring that had been, you know, hurting people's lives all over the world. And uh, it was amazing to watch those computer techs work. These guys have been doing this. These were, you know, special agents trained in computer forensics. They've been doing it 15, 20 years. And just to watch them slice and dice that computer live and then take the hard drives. And, you know, we were doing forensic copies there in the field and we were storing this, uh, the evidence. It was just uh, really opened my eyes to what cyber can be. And it was then I decided I really wanted to go into cyber as a special agent. Wow. <laughs> My mouth has been like wide open for the last like four minutes. That is not to make light of obviously a very serious situation, but it, I mean, it's very rare that you get to talk to people that have actually experienced or had your life experiences. And it just, it sounds like an action movie with like the kill switch and the, that's wild. Um, yeah, I should say and, that. A lot of experience in the FBI is not like it's that. not that. Yes, I yes. tell people it's like doing it's like doing your taxes or writing essays for homework. Right, right. There's so much paperwork. We used to say, you know, for every hour in the field, there's like five hours of paperwork, mm -hmm. uh, which is important because you got to document everything. But right. it wasn't all like that. But that was an experience that that really changed me and opened my eyes to the difference you could make in cyber. Um, and like I said, it made me want to be a cyber agent. So, like, how do you prioritize your mental health? Um, and, and kind of what do you do now so that you can trust your future self? I know we were talking about that before, so that you have the confidence now to know that future Adam has got it taken care of. Yeah, it's a great question. One thing I've realized is, um, you can't be on all the time. So throughout my military career, but then also my law enforcement career, you really are on call 24 seven and it's no different now uh, being on a security team, you're on call 24 seven and, but you've got to step away from work. You cannot work all the time. You can't think about work all the time. So it's really been a lifetime of building up ways to um, responsibly step away from work. And by responsibly, I mean, you make sure that someone else is going to answer the calls or or filter them before they get to you for a time period. So if it's the evenings, you've got someone on calls handling that, I know that I'm only going to get called if it's really, really bad, right? And so therefore, I can leave that behind. Or if there's a bunch of emails I got to catch up on or a bunch of work, again, I make these contracts with my future self and I say, well, at 9 p.m., I'm going to go deal with those. But from you know six to nine, I'm going to spend time with my kids and really focus on that and be present. So it's, it's being uh, deliberate. And also realizing that things like sleep, things like disconnecting from work, things like hobbies and recreation. Uh, I learned early in my life for me, working out is really important, whether it be, you know, hiking, mountain biking, going to the gym. I, I've got to get that physical exercise and they make me better at my job. 
So even though I might be tempted to grind it out and, you know, once in a while that is required, you've got to just grind it out for a few days. I mean, work for days at a time, mm -hmm. but not all the time, not most of the time. Most of the time you've got to do those things that help you be uh, a better, a better, you know, law enforcement officer or a better, you know, yeah. operator or a better uh, employee leader, whatever it is, you've got to take time to do those things. Um, and then also, you know, I had a mentor uh, in the private sector who gave me a book on Stoic philosophy at one time. And uh, a lot of people hear, hear Stoic and they think like, oh, people don't have emotions. It's very different than that. These are the old philosophers, you know, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca. And I take a lot from them and I use a lot of those techniques um, when the stress starts to go up to try to alleviate the stress and focus on that. And then a huge part of that is to apply all of those things to my teams and my people to make sure they're doing the same things and have the opportunity to do that for themselves because mm -hmm. all of us need to be able to back each other up. Mm -hmm. We are a brotherhood, sisterhood. We are a team. We've got to have that. And so uh, making sure that they're also taking care of themselves is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. What's the book? Um, well, I mean, you can go everything from meditations from Marcus Aurelius or, uh, the obstacle is the way by Ryan holiday is another good one. Yeah. So, um, he's done a, Ryan has done a great job to kind of popularize stoic philosophy, but, uh, I, I use a lot of those techniques frequently. So, uh, that is a good book. Yeah. We just were talking about one of Marcus Aurelius quotes on people experienced recently, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And how do we see our challenges as the not the roadblock, but the thing that is going to move us forward? Um, okay, I've been dying to ask you though, Adam. So on our last podcast with Brian Nismith, our co-founder, um, he talked a lot about prioritization and how he learned I need to choose just the things that are going to matter to me and decide what's not. And that's how he has found, or that was one of his things that he recommended for finding success and like peace and happiness, all that stuff. And that really seemed to resonate. We had a ton of comments from PAC members about the importance of prioritizing. Um, and I saw on your LinkedIn that you follow Greg McEwen. I don't know how to say his last mm -hmm. name, but he's the author of Essentialism, which yep. is kind of that principle of like, if it's not, if it's not essential, get rid of it and just focus on what's essential. So I'm curious if it kind of sounds like that's a philosophy you apply, but um curious if yeah you have if you just follow him if you've read his stuff and if so like what have you decided is essential I mean you've talked about it like sleep and working out and family um, but what have you decided is non-essential like what have you cut out to have those things that are priorities yeah I really do like that book uh essentialism um and his second book effortless those are great books to read about learning how to say no um but it's saying no to say yes, right? So creating those and understanding where you have the most impact and then focusing on those efforts. It did take me a long time to learn that just because I could do something and even because I could do something well, doesn't mean that I should do it. And so I do like to think a lot about where, where, where are my leverage points? Where do I make the biggest difference? And then try to focus my activities on those efforts. And, you know, it's going to change. Sometimes it might be uh, there's a project going awry or something like that, and I'll need to focus on being more operational and tactical. Or it might be we just don't have the strategic vision. We said it a year ago. We haven't talked about it. So now we need to bring that strategic vision back to what we're doing. So a lot of it is is not uh, categorical. Like, it's hard to say, like, I've, I don't do these things anymore. I do these things. It kind of depends on context. But it's constantly being intentional and ruthlessly prioritizing where I spend my time because it's one of those things you know two or three priorities for the day are really all you're going to be able to do and focus on um, and once you get to four and five now they're not priorities anymore so it's being very ruthless about that and where where can I have the most the most leverage and make the biggest difference that's the calculation I go into to think about it um and then when I set goals for myself for the quarter and things like that, I'll try to focus on, you know, what are the larger things that I can do and try to prioritize each day as I sit down and say, what am I going to prioritize today? And try to make sure I keep those larger things in mind. So I bring those into my day, you know, almost each day to make sure I execute on that. So we want to talk a little bit about leadership and could you, what's your definition of leadership? I guess let's start with that. And then maybe how have your philosophies evolved over the years, your leadership philosophies? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I, I really think about leadership as a responsibility and not necessarily a role or position. You can take on this responsibility, you know, at the earliest levels in your career and then all the way up to, you know, maybe you're a CEO someday or, you know, some other type of formal leader. But it's a responsibility. It's a responsibility to help people do and be their best. It changes from you being the person who does the thing and gets the things done to you being the person that helps other people get the things done. Or if you're a leader of leaders, you help your leaders help people get things done and be their best and do their best and be an environment that allows them to accomplish more than they ever thought possible. To me, that's what really, really what leadership is about. And I used to focus on the parts of leadership that were about vision and purpose and those are really, really important parts to, you know, set that vision and say, this is what we're trying to accomplish. But I have found as uh, the longer I've, I've been a leader and been in leadership is that it's really about people. Mm-hmm. And it's really about, you know, aligning your people's results with the, with the goals of the organization and then enabling them to have the maximum amount of success for themselves and for the organization. Because when you align their efforts with the organization's efforts, then when you help them maximize their success, they succeed, the team succeeds, and the organization succeeds. Adam, I was doing, I Googled you and I found a article by Paltrics. You were named like manager of the year there or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I read this that you had said about leadership. And you said, I'm going to read this as a quote by you in this interview. The bottom line is you have to care and it can't be fake. It can't be artificial. You have to really care about the people on your team. I believe in the adage to know someone is to love them. The more I learn about somebody, the more the caring comes. And after you care about someone, everything else falls into place and becomes natural. It becomes natural to give them everything they need to succeed. It becomes natural to be their advocate. It becomes natural when you see their flaws. So you want to give them feedback about the things that are getting in their way. Um, I just thought that was so good. And I felt like everybody needed to hear that. Do you, would you still stand by that or has your leadership philosophy evolved? No, absolutely. That's underlying everything in leadership is empathy, right? You got to care and people can detect it when you don't really care and you really just are focused on the goal and everybody has different styles. Some people might be more gruff. Some people might be more, you know, um, sort of traditionally kind hearted, but underlying that all you can really feel if somebody cares if they care about you if they care about the organization and you're really just trying to do those those big three things that i talk about which are give direction provide coaching and help them with their long-term career and if you can do those three things for people so that direction is where you give them the purpose the vision the goals and the daily priorities so direction is a big piece um and then the coaching is where you tell them what they're doing well and and like in that quote, you know, what's getting in their way? And you should be telling them what they're doing well, like five times more than than what's getting in their way. Because oftentimes you may think it's obvious that, oh, they did that really well. They need to know and you need to tell them, hey, that was great. I want to see more of that. You do more of that, you're going to be successful. And then once in a while you might say, mm, you could improve. And if you're doing that at that ratio, then the feedback doesn't feel like just getting you know, cr- constructive criticism all the time. It feels like this person really cares about me and they want me to succeed. They can also feel that when you're given feedback and you're given feedback, not because the person's a problem or something, but because you care and you're like, Hey, it's getting in your way when you're doing X, Y, or Z. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another thing that really ha- helps people know that you care is if you care about their career, if you're not just, you know, coaching them for the next promotion, but you're saying, what do you want to do with your life? And I am going to do everything I can in the context of you know, this relationship working here to get you to their goals. You want to be a CISO? Do you want to be a farmer? You know, whatever it is that you want to do, I want to help you get there. And I'm going to have conversations with you, give you the experiences we can in this context. So you'll be prepared for those roles in the future. And if you do those things, um, I really think that you'll find your people will have more success and then you will have more success on your team and in your organization. We need a part two. Love that. I know. (laughs) That's so good. I know we need way more time, way more time. Um, but we we have to wrap up, unfortunately. But we're gonna end with our fun rapid fire questions. So again, just first thing that comes to your to your mind, 
Um, and we'll get started. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Ready for everything. Okay. Adam, best concert of your life? I recently went to a Weezer concert with my whole family, my four kids and my wife, and it was amazing to have us all dancing, and Weezer's a fun band, so that was great. So fun. Okay, favorite word? Uh, love. A place on your bucket list? Whistler, Canada, mountain biking. Oh, okay, okay. What's something that people often get wrong about you? Uh, that I'm kind of like a mean and stern and <laughs> aggro person. And I don't think I'm really that, but people can see me that way. I think after listening to this podcast, no one would think of you in that way. <laughs> I will say that. Um, okay, finally, give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brought you joy. Uh, sitting around the dinner table with my family and, you know, laughing about something stupid and, you know, snorting mm -hmm. and stuff's coming out of people's mouths and people are laughing. I recently had that with, with me and my kids and my wife, and it was great. Uh, love it. Love that. Well, Adam, this was so much fun. Thank you for being our second guest on the Howard <laughs> podcast. And I took notes that I can't even read because they're all over the yes. place. So I'm going to need to listen back. Um, again, sure. there was so much good stuff here. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know you're busy, um, but to share with us and the greater pack about you, about your role, leadership philosophies. This was awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great. I'm really glad you're doing this. That was so much fun. I feel like I learned a ton. So much. We definitely need Adam back. So many gems, so many nuggets. Like this could have been a three-hour podcast, I feel like. It easily could have. There were so many questions that I was holding. I was like, we can't go there. We have eight minutes left. <laughs> literally, literally. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited for this podcast to continue. And hopefully as we continue to get to know more of our leaders, we can start to bring people back in the future. and learn even more nuggets from Adam. Yeah, for sure. And on that note, if you're listening and you're part of the pack, join the Howler Slack channel and let us know what you liked, what stood out to you. We have, I can't say what yet, but some cool swag that we'll be able to give away. So per usual, leave some comments. We'll pick a couple of folks to send some swag to, some TBD surprise swag. And then, um, but also the feedback helps us. So if there's things that you want to know or things that we can include to make this helpful, relevant to you. We're all ears because the goal for this podcast is to help the whole pack, regardless of location or role, feel connected mm -hmm. to the greater organization, our leaders, each other. So, so let us know. Thanks for, for listening and we will catch you next time. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.